This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Oftentimes in the American criminal justice system, wealth, not culpability, and even class and race determine outcomes. In many instances, citizens that are charged with crimes lack the resources to investigate cases or obtain the help they need, which leads often to wrongful convictions and excessive sentences, even in capital cases. Racial disparities persist at every level of the system, from misdemeanor arrests to life sentences and executions. The law and order policies that led to mass incarceration are rooted in the belief that black and brown people are inherently guilty and dangerous. And that belief still drives excessive sentencing policies today. Increase incarceration does not reduce crime or violent crime for that matter. Prisons have only worsened issues such as poverty and mental illness for disenfranchised citizens. People have overcrowded and violent jails and prisons are more traumatized and mentally deficient. Today we'll be, we will be discussing criminal justice and criminal justice reform in the United States. Our first guest is Jonathan Rapping. Mr. Rapping is a criminal defense attorney and founder and president of Gideon's Promise. He's also a professor of law at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, and he teaches trial advocacy at Harvard Law School. He received the MacArthur Genius Award in 2014 for showing extraordinary and original and dedicated uh, pursuits and a market capacity for self-direction, which he showed. Mr. Rapping regularly writes about issues related to criminal defense and the criminal justice system. He has also written extensively on issues related to criminal justice reform, and he has been published in numerous scholarly and professional journals. His extensive contributions have been published by the National Association of Public Defense, Talk Poverty, The Nation, The Champion, Justice Watch, The Advocate, and Congressional Quarterly Research, just to name a few. He is the author of the book Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, and he's also the host of Gideon's Promise in his podcast. Mr. Rapping, welcome today to Perspectives on Justice, and I really thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here. I thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's uh, start with a little about your background and what was it that 
uh, caused you to become an agent for change in this area? Well, you know, I think it probably goes back to my childhood. I, w- I was raised in an activist household during the the, the late 60s, early 70s was frequently brought to demonstrations and protests. And one of my earliest memories of, of a courtroom, actually, I was probably six or seven years old. Some friends of ours were arrested at a protest. And I remember being in the courtroom, watching these friends of ours up there, and they had these lawyers who looked larger than life to me standing with them. And at some point, the lights went out and there were police surrounding the courtroom and there was scuffling. And when the lights came back on, my mother had her, her jacket sleeve ripped. Um, and I remember realizing at that point that sometimes courtrooms um, aren't always places where justice is done. And I saw those lawyers as protectors of justice. I think that's probably the first time I, I thought I wanted to be a defense lawyer. Great. Uh, your mom or dad uh, lawyers? No, both my parents were professors, but they were always um, very active in 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 civil rights movement, the the the, the anti war movement, the women's movement. So, so I grew up around activists. Oh yeah, I can understand. I see where you got your activism from. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's now talk about Gideon's Promise. Uh, I've heard the name, but there may be many of my listeners who are unfamiliar with that organization. Tell us about uh, the work that you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career as a public defender in Washington, D.C., which, for those who don't know, is really a model public defender office. And then in 2005, I came to Georgia uh, when when Georgia was just starting a statewide public defender system. And I came to be part of the reform effort to build that statewide system. Two years later, Katrina hit, Hurricane Katrina. I went to New Orleans to help with the effort to rebuild the public defender office there. I did some work in Alabama, Mississippi, and it was really my introduction to what criminal justice looked like in the rest of the world. Um, And I met these, I worked with public defenders in all these places. And everywhere I went, I would meet these courageous, young, idealistic public defenders. And they would go into systems that had come to accept this embarrassingly low standard of justice. And within a couple of years, you would just see the passion beaten out of them. You would see that they would either quit or, or worse, they'd start to become resigned to the status quo. They would start to slowly process human beings and, and, and not even realize that they were becoming part of the problem. And so I founded Gideon's Promise really as an effort to to build a community that would give training and support and mentorship to public defenders so they could hold on to those ideals and and ultimately develop into the advocates that communities impacted by our approach to criminal justice desperately needed. Now, what what type of persons uh, assist you in this uh, Gideon's Promise? Well, I have to say, I I wouldn't be a good partner or a good husband if I didn't say first and foremost my wife, because um, I I co-founded the organization with my wife. Her name is Ilham Askia, and she's not a lawyer. She actually was introduced to the criminal justice system at the age of five when her father was arrested and charged with crimes he committed years earlier. By the time he was arrested, he had turned his life around. He was a small business owner, got married, had four small children. She was the oldest at five, converted to Islam. And he was charged with crimes he committed years earlier, given a public defender, and that public defender never told his story. And without an advocate there to to offer a counter-narrative, he was processed through the system and sentenced to 10 years in Attica. And she 
grew up knowing her father from behind bars. And one thing she always said to me that just really, I think, is at the heart of the work we do at Gideon's Promise is she said, you know, what was even harder than growing up with a father behind bars was coming to the realization that the people I love don't matter. Most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system. And what struck me was that the primary messenger to this five-year-old girl that she didn't matter, that the system didn't think she was valuable, was a public defender, right? Not a public defender who was was malicious or who meant uh, to be, be, be part of the problem, but a public defender who was likely so overwhelmed and so beaten down that they had become resigned to processing human beings. And they didn't even realize that, that by facilitating this system, they weren't only doing a disservice to the person standing next to them, they were sending a message to children, to families, to communities. And so she joined me in building Gideon's Promise to try to to change the community of public defenders. But we're helped by some of the best public defenders from around the country who volunteer as trainers and mentors. And 15 years later, I'm proud to say that a lot of our alumni who have gone through our programming are now trainers and mentors with us. And some of them are are leading offices in places like Detroit, Nashville, Tulsa, Houston. So 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 we've built quite a community of, of advocates who work with us in this effort. Yeah, let, let me uh, ask you uh, a little deeper dive into that. What, what are the typical things that uh, you and other officers try to instill in the public defender's office to assist in training? Well, I think first and foremost, I would say is we, we're trying to develop a community of, of what I would call client-centered public defenders. And and far too often, I mean, you, you've heard this yourself, there are communities that depend on public defenders who actually don't trust public defenders. They don't want public defenders. They call them public pretenders. Um, and, and, and that reputation is, is sometimes well-deserved. Again, not because the public defenders um, don't care, but because they're so overwhelmed and they are so under-resourced that they just start to kind of take shortcuts. And so being a client-centered public defender means uh, grooming a generation of public defenders to, to, to put front and center the human being that they serve, to not substitute their judgment for, for the priorities of the people they serve, to take the time to learn those stories, to tell those stories, and to advocate, to actually give voice to people who have been silenced in a space where they're not allowed to speak for themselves and where so much damage is done. So it's building offices that truly respect and care about the dignity of the people in the communities that that have to depend on them. Good good point. Uh, I want to tell my listeners we're talking to Jonathan Rapping, who is a criminal defense attorney and the founder and president of Gideon's Promise. He also is a professor of law at the John Marshall Law School. Uh, Mr. Rapping, uh, I, of course, uh, early in my career was a public defender. I was an assistant public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland, and I often uh, got uh, clients uh, or heard clients say to me, uh, I want a real lawyer. <laughs> and, 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 and I guess uh, my, my question is, uh, how do we change the perception and the reputation that people have uh, for public defenders? Yeah, I think that is a great question. And I think, you know, again, it is easy when you're doing this work and you're overwhelmed 
to think, you know, I wish these people would just shut up and let me defend them, right? Because all these phone calls, I don't have time to answer the phone calls from the mothers and fathers and sisters and cousins. Um, and I think that that one of the first things we have to understand as public defenders is 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 simply listening and taking the time to hear the stories of people who have been silenced their whole lives is one of the most important aspects of the job. And if we don't value that, if we think we can somehow represent people without giving them the time to, to give us guidance and direction and to help us understand what they want, we will perpetuate that stereotype that we don't care about them, that we are part of the system, that um, that we really care more about our relationship with judges and prosecutors than we do about the very people we're tasked with with serving. Sure, sure. And of course, uh, during my uh, 20 years on the federal bench, I, of course, saw a number of federal public defenders. And from my uh, standpoint, they were the best uh, uh, litigants uh, around that includes the defense ball, so I was quite uh, happy uh, with uh, the public defender uh, system. Uh, what about the caseload? Uh, it's always complaints that public defenders have too many cases and they can't really concentrate on one case. That's a complaint I hear a lot. Uh, what was your response to that? Yeah, I think I, I mean I want to also address Judge. I mean, you you mentioned the public defenders you work with, and as we were talking about before the program, I. Uh, you know, I, I know the man that, that heads the office in Greenbelt. He's a, one of the best lawyers you're going to find. And it's, it, it is true that, that many public defenders are the best lawyers, the best criminal defense lawyers in the courtroom. Um, but as you said, caseloads can be overwhelming. And, and, and oftentimes we work with lawyers, you know, we now work with lawyers across over, over half the states in America and many of them are carrying three, four, five hundred cases. Super lawyer couldn't come in and give all of those people the representation they deserve. Literally, these public defenders have to figure out how to triage just so they could try to figure out which cases they should give the appropriate time to, meaning that they have to watch other people fall through the cracks. And what that does to a person's spirit, was it? what it does to a person's soul um, can really uh, can really be astounding. And so caseloads are a huge problem. And I think that, that the only reason we tolerate, the only reason those of us who are, who, who are responsible for administering justice tolerate these caseloads is because we truly don't see other people's children as valuable as we see our own. We would never tolerate a lawyer with those kinds of caseload pressures, representing someone we loved in one of the most important moments of their life. But you see, unfortunately, and I'm sure you know this, you see judges, you see prosecutors, you see defense lawyers every day in courtrooms who watch this happen. I, can I share a quick story, Judge? Absolutely. I, I was, uh, my, my wife and I brought my children a couple years ago to Washington, D.C. And we, we went to the, uh, the National Museum of African American History, which is just this incredible museum that, that starts in the basement level 400 years ago, 1619. And you start to work your way up these ramps. 
and you sort of go through um, history uh, and, and, and you see the black experience in America. And we worked our way uh, up to about the Jim Crow era. And it was lunchtime and we were exhausted and it was heavy. And we decided that we were going to leave for the day and come back the next day and finish. And so we went and grabbed lunch. And then my kids asked if they could see the courthouse where I started my career. So we went to D.C. Superior Court and we went into the courtroom where they do first appearance hearings, where, where people are brought the day after they're first arrested. And we're sitting there, me, my, my, my at the time, 14-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old son at the time. And I knew the judge on the bench from when I was practicing there. I knew many of the defense lawyers. I knew the courtroom clerks. Um, I didn't know any of the prosecutors, but I'm sure I knew prosecutors just like them when I was there. And the, the, the clerk started calling the cases, and they called a case of a young black man, hands shackled together and chained to a chain around his waist. And after about 30 seconds, they finished that case, went on with the next one, another young black man. And after about five or six of these cases, all young black men chained in the same way, my 10-year-old son turned to me and said, Daddy, this is just like that museum. And I thought to myself, here is a room full of people responsible for administering justice who watch this happen every day. It's become so normalized, we lost our sense of outrage. And here's a 10-year-old child who's the only person in the courtroom who realizes that what is happening there is more akin to slavery or Jim Crow than anything that resembles justice. And it's in a courtroom in the nation's capital. Right? That's not because of bad people. That's because of a culture that has normalized injustice, that shapes all of us if we're not careful, if we don't have training, mentorship, support that we provide at Gideon's Promise to public defenders so they don't become part of that processing. This is so uh, important and well said. Uh, I want to tell my listeners we're talking to Jonathan Rapping, a professor and criminal defense attorney and founder and president of Gideon's Promise, and uh, Mr. Rappin has uh, given us uh, a wonderful description of the role of public defenders, the training of those offices, and he's also helped us correct uh, misconceptions about uh, public defenders and so forth. Let me uh, switch uh, gears for a second. We will have an opportunity to talk to a prosecutor shortly. Uh, what a, a move to a criminal justice reform uh, for a second. Uh, you're in and out of the courtroom and you've done that uh, in, in a number of years and you know how the criminal justice system works. Uh, uh, what's your reflections on uh, criminal justice reform and some of the key areas where we need to reform our system? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think we are at this very pivotal moment in our nation's history. We've, we've, we're now a year into a pandemic that is really highlighted um, just, just, just how, um, how, how people without means are treated in America. We are uh, in the process of dealing with a, a national racial reckoning where we are seeing uprisings to the fact that, 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 that 400 years of racial oppression is still going on in America. And I think that we see people taking to the streets and, and people recognize that, that black and brown communities are routinely subjected to violence at the hands of police in the streets. Um, but I think what public defenders recognize is that that violence that happens in the streets is connected 
to another kind of violence, a normalized, invisible, routinized violence that happens in courtrooms. Most people survive police encounters and they're thrown into a criminal legal system where they're subjected to a violence that's not captured on videotape, it's not on CNN, there are no cell phones recording, and they're subjected to that violence when they're held on money bonds that they can't afford, when they're overcharged, when they're processed through the system without a lawyer that you and I would pay for, when they're sentenced to draconian sentences, when they're sentenced to prisons and jails that are dangerous and unsafe. And, and public defenders are really the only vehicle to interrupt that normalized violence. And I, and I think what I would conclude with is by saying that the reason that violence happens is because we have come to accept a narrative that says some lives don't matter. And when we believe that narrative, we tolerate the mistreatment of people that we wouldn't tolerate for people that we care for. What public defenders do, um, it's, it's more than just protecting the Constitution. Public defenders, when they're at their best, they take the time to learn the stories that aren't being heard, to hear the voices that are being silenced, to amplify those voices so that even progressive thinking judges and prosecutors they can't act on those progressive instincts if they don't know anything about the human being, their decisions impact. It's only through public defenders who represent 80% of the people in the criminal legal system that good judges like you and good prosecutors like Tony, it's only through public defenders that you all know the stories of the people so that you can actually act fairly. So to me, public defenders are absolutely essential to the criminal justice story. Yes, yes. Uh now, uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, let me uh, ask a, a little more specific question in this area of reform. I've always uh, been uh, amazed that the entire criminal justice system is based on discretion. Discretion by police officers, discretion by prosecutors, discretion by judges, discretion by probation officers, even some discretion by medical examiners in determining the cause uh, of death and so forth. So what's your reflections on uh, discretion? Uh, uh, what's the uh, area where it's abused? And can we do anything about uh, eliminating or at least curbing the discretion that takes place in the criminal justice system? That is such an important question. I mean, I, look, I, I think that discretion is always necessary if you're going to have truly fair, just systems, because no two situations are identical. Uh, the problem with discretion is if you have people in positions who aren't truly committed to justice-centered values, they can abuse that discretion. And, um, and, and I talked about culture earlier. I think, I think at its at its core, the biggest problem facing our criminal justice system today is a cultural problem. It is that we have too many professionals in it who have been shaped by a warped set of, set of values. You may have prosecutors who are more focused on getting convictions than they are in sort of ensuring that, that, that constitutional protections are upheld. You may have judges who feel pressure to move cases and efficiency trumps justice. You may have public defenders and defense lawyers who feel pressure to handle more cases than they can. 
Um, and, and, and that trumps giving people the service they deserve. And so I think ultimately discretion is critical, but it is really dangerous if we don't take the time to recruit, train, mentor criminal justice professionals to truly embrace and internalize justice-centered values. That goes for defense lawyers, it goes for prosecutors, it goes for judges, it goes for police. I think in every area, we have a cultural problem that can make the use of discretion dangerous. Uh, well said. Uh, I have noticed uh, the past several uh, years there's been an election of of a different kind of prosecutor who seems to be moving away, at least some of them, moving away from the law and order uh, culture that's uh, existed uh, historically. You have any thoughts on that? I, I do. I mean, there there is a the the, the term has been used, progressive prosecutor. Um, I actually, and I mean no disrespect, I, I I'm I'm not a fan of that term because I I think I think there are certainly progressive people who become prosecutors. But I think given the, the structure in our criminal justice system, you can't truly be a progressive prosecutor in the sense that you're really left with a, a group of choices, none of which are really progressive. And so I think that we see prosecutors, I prefer to call them less punitive prosecutors. Um, and I, and I applaud less punitive prosecutors. We need more of them. But you see what many of them are doing is they say things like, I will not charge people with, uh, with drug possession, or I won't ask for money bonds for somebody um, who's committed a nonviolent offense. And that carves a group of people um, out of the universe of folks who are really devastated by the criminal legal system. But there still is a group of people that are thrown into the criminal legal system, and it's the only system we have to deal with them. And those people are still given lawyers who are overwhelmed. They're sent to jails and prisons that are inhumane. And there's nothing progressive about that. It might just be less cruel. And so I applaud the movement to get reform-minded prosecutors. I think they are critical. Uh, but I also think that they alone can't truly create a progressive system. They can do less harm. I also think, as I said earlier, if they don't take the time to know each and every human being deeply, which only comes through good lawyers, they really can't be um, progressive in any individual case. And so I applaud reform-minded prosecutors, but they can't. But yes, I'll, I'll end there. I, I applaud them. Yeah, just a couple more questions. Our time's just about up. But uh, I uh, was... Uh, in uh, Africa, uh, lecturing to some judges over there, one of the things I told them was that uh, in this country, most of the cases end up with pleas. Uh, over 90% of the cases before the courts end up in pleas. They thought that was uh, horrendous. And what kind of system is that? Do you have any thoughts on why so many cases uh, end up with pleas and whether we, that should be uh, the, the uh, part and parcel of our criminal justice system? Well, I, I mean, I'll give you my views, and, 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 and you know, if, if, I'd love to hear Tony's response later if, if, if that's appropriate. But I, I, I think that, you know, we, we have, you know, founders that drafted a constitution that really envisioned that justice only happens after there is a, a process, and that process includes a trial, 
with a jury, at least for the more serious cases, where there is a lawyer who has the time to actually breathe life into all of the constitutional protections, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. Um, and we have become so addicted to, to, to criminalizing behavior that our criminal codes have exploded. There are thousands of crimes on the books in every state. And prosecutors face real pressure to charge people with all of these crimes, even the most minor crimes. And when they're that overwhelmed, they don't have the resources to really put all of those cases through the process that our founders deemed essential to justice. And so they've been given tools to take shortcuts. The tools are excessive money bonds, overcharging, threatening mandatory minimum sentences, and those tools can be used to coerce people to plead guilty. It, it's too, the risk of going to trial is too great. And so I actually think that, that if I were a prosecutor, I would say, listen, if I only have resources to charge 100 cases and the public is demanding that I prosecute 500, I will not prosecute 500 cases. I'm going to have to pick 100. The other 400, I'm going to have to dismiss. And I, 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 But what I won't do is put one more case into the system if it means it can't be tried consistent with the process that we define as essential to justice. If, if, we, had a, if we had a Department of Transportation and the public demanded 500 miles of roads and they had money for 100 miles of roads, and the person running that department said, I'm going to build 500 miles of broken road, even though I don't have enough money. And people started having accidents and dying and being injured. That person would be fired. But prosecutors are pressured every day to put 500 units of justice into a system resourced only to handle 100 units. And I think that prosecutors need to use their discretion to say, I refuse to do that. I, I will not charge all of these cases. Well, I want to tell my listeners uh, we have uh, gotten some important information from Jonathan Rapping, who is a professor and criminal defense attorney and founder and president of Gideon's Promise. Uh, he has given us some outstanding information today about the role and the training for public defender offices, and he's also given us some very, very strategic information on criminal justice reform. We do have a, a prosecutor who's going to be joining us uh, momentarily, and we certainly will ask him some of these same uh, uh, questions that we posed to Mr. Rapping. So, Mr. Rapping, thank you so much for joining me today on Perspectives on Justice. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. The FBI recently released the 2019 Crime in the United States Report which looks at last year's trends. The data is easily cherry-picked to push false narratives around what works and what doesn't work to fight crime. Here are some dangerous misconceptions to look out for. Myth number one, we must remain tough on crime. However, research has shown that tough methods are a waste of resources. Tactics such as stop and frisk and the misuse and overuse of jails are discriminatory and do not keep communities safe. 
someone who spends time in jail is statistically more likely to reoffend and end up back in the system. And a study from the Pretrial Justice Institute shows that as few as three days spent unnecessarily in jail can have collateral consequences for a person's life, such as the loss of a job and health benefits and time away from family obligations. Cities and counties have been able to safely release people pre-trial without seeing an increase in rates of rearrest or failure to appear. Rather than being tough on crime, investing in the needs of the community and the people most affected by crime is the most effective way to keep communications and communities safe. Myth number two. One year of crime data can show a trend. Well, as we review the analysis of annual crime trends in the FBI's report on 2019, we must keep in mind that historical context is the key to ensuring a true apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Year-to-year -year crime stats do not paint the most accurate picture trends over decades do. Pointing to a current or even seasonal spike in certain crimes, for example, the recent jump in homicides in cities across the country ignores the overall crime, including violent crime and homicides, is significantly lower now than in the 1980s and 1990s. Many factors influence fluctuations in crime rates, such as the tendency for crimes to rise in the spring and summer and decline in the fall and winter, or changes in policing tactics. An uptick or downturn in any one year doesn't necessarily signal a larger trend. Myth number three, the criminal justice reform means more crime. Big cities and counties have been working for years to implement tested, data-driven reform strategies that keep communities safe while reducing the misuse and overuse of jails. This includes bail reform, which despite the naysayers, has not been found to increase crime. In research released this month by Loyola University Chicago scholars, they found the 2017 order by Chief Judge of the Circuit Court of Cook County, his name was Timothy Evans, to reevaluate the use of monetary bail in Cook County, Illinois, and that increased the percent and number of people released pretrial without any associated significant change in new criminal activity, violent or otherwise nor any change in the amount of crime in Chicago after 2017. Though critics insist we need to choose between reform and safety, cities and counties are proving that this is a false choice. The system can be made more fair and all communities can be kept safe. Oh, welcome back to Perspectives on Justice. Our next guest is Mr. Tony Covington. Mr. Covington is an Air Force veteran and former intelligence officer. While in the Air Force, uh, Mr. Covington attended and graduated from 
the American University Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. Upon his separation from the Air Force, Mr. Covington was sworn in as an assistant state's attorney in Prince George's County, Maryland. After 18 months in that position, he was asked to join the Charles County State's Attorney's Office, where he prosecuted all types of crimes until 1997. In 1997, Mr. Covington went into private practice, during which he litigated cases in every jurisdiction in Maryland and in many states throughout the country, including New York, Kentucky, Virginia, Delaware, and Washington, D.C. In 2003, after six years of success in private practice, he returned to the Charles County State's Attorney's Office to become Deputy State's Attorney. Mr. Covington served the citizens of Charles County in that capacity until January of 2011, trying virtually all of the most serious and infamous cases in the county. In 2010, upon his predecessor's retirement, he ran for and was elected state's attorney in November of that year. On January 3rd, 2011, Mr. Covington made history when he became the first African-American to take the oath of office as the state's attorney for Charles County, Maryland. Mr. Covington was re-elected state's attorney in 2014 and again in 2018. Mr. Covington, welcome to Perspectives on Justice, and thank you for joining us. Well, Judge, thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Before I get into uh, the questioning, I certainly want to let our listeners know that uh, I was the one that hired uh, uh, Mr. Covington as the assistant state's attorney back in Prince George's County, and next thing I looked around, someone had stolen it. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't happy about that, but uh, certainly have been thrilled with his great career that he's had. So, uh, Tony, uh, let me... Uh, I'll start off by saying a, a good portion of your life and career has been in public service. And what made you want to be a public servant? Well, I don't know. It was kind of interesting. I mean, I, I joined the military. Man, my father was a, an Army officer graduating out of Morgan State through ROTC. I went through ROTC in college. So the military was the thing. I did go to law school while I was in the Air Force, and I had planned on being an uh, international lawyer. I made the mistake of putting a trial advocacy class on my schedule, and I got bitten by the trial bug, uh, and my intent was to become a trial attorney, and you graciously brought me on. As a matter of fact, I credit you with uh, my entire career because you held the job open for me for eight months because, you know, you don't get out of the Air Force when you want to. They let you out when they want to let you out, and you were willing to hold that job for me, and I appreciated it, uh, but I always considered myself as being a trial attorney, and I still do today. Uh, when I was in private practice, you know, I tried, you know, 99% of the cases that I handled were uh, were criminal cases. Uh, public service is in my family, runs in my family. I think it's a still a noble calling. Um, I like doing it. I like being out there in private practice, but uh, just wasn't quite the same. So I came back to prosecuting. So uh, I don't have any great stories to tell you about why I want to 
because why I want to serve the public, but that's just something that I've done, and, and it's been very gratifying throughout my career. Sure, that's a wonderful statement. And, of course, you just mentioned that you went into private practice for several years handling, I suspect, mm -hmm. both criminal and civil cases. Were there any takeaways or any observations you made while uh, being a private attorney that uh, carried on into your career as a uh, state's attorney? Well, I had the pleasure of listening to Mr. Rapping and talking about defense work and public defender and clients especially. Um, I found that clients want you to fight for them, right? And that's the most uh, striking thing to me. Quite frankly, some of the worst outcomes that I had for a client, um, I had the most grateful client because I busted my behind, right? did everything that I needed to do, everything I possibly could to defend the person. Outcome didn't come out like we liked to, like we liked it to have, but because I was willing to fight, because I was willing to defend them um, and do everything that I possibly could within the ethical constructs of, of the job, um, they were happy. And I do see that. Um, nothing, you know, as a prosecutor, and I'm segueing here a little bit, but as a prosecutor, nothing ticks me off more than a lazy, Okay, non-caring defense attorney. Fortunately, there are not that many of them. And I will say in Maryland, where the bulk of my experience has been, the public defender service in Maryland, I think, has a very high reputation. Um, and uh, I'll just say it like this, because I've said it for years and years. I've said it for decades, as long as I've been doing this thing. If my life depended on it and I had to select 10 public defenders or 10 private defense attorneys, I take the public defenders every day of the week, twice on Sunday um, in Maryland because they're willing to fight. And as a prosecutor, you want your defendant in any case to be represented by the best representation they can be. Why? Because you believe the person is guilty. OK, you want the system to work properly and you want everybody that if the jury does find that guy guilty or a judge finds the person guilty, you want everybody to have confidence and faith in the outcome of that proceeding. You want everybody to have faith and confidence that justice has been done. If people don't believe that, as we have been seeing in the past years here, okay, if people don't believe the system is working right and justice is not being done, then everything's going to fall apart. Um, so as a prosecutor, you always want competent, um, caring um, an enthusiastic representation for a defendant. We are talking with uh, Mr. Tony Covington, the elected state's attorney for Charles County, Maryland. Uh, Tony, uh, before we talk more about your role as a prosecutor, I guess uh, I'd ask the initial question. You were in private practice. Mm -hmm. You had been uh, prosecuted before that time in two offices, one in the state's attorneys for Prince George's and in Charles County. And then you return to Charles County as a prosecutor. What uh, drove you to decide, I want to come back to the state's attorney's office? Well, as I indicated, I like trying cases. That's what I, I don't do that. That's the best thing I do in life. Not that I'm the best at it, but for me, my talents are well-suited for that. And I just wanted to be able to focus on trying cases, which you can do as a prosecutor. Very difficult in private practice when you have to run around trying to build business, get clients, um, deal with money, and all of the business things that you have to 
um, in private practice. That was really it. I, I had fun out in, in private practice. I, I did a lot of good work, a lot of hard work. I had great, um, really, you know, once in, in, in a career lifetime experiences and some of the people that I represented and all that. Um, but it really just came down to, I just want to focus on trying cases. So that's, that's why I returned to, to being a prosecutor. All right. Uh, now, Mr. Covington, you are, of course, the elected uh, state's attorney for uh, Charles County. And uh, maybe you can uh, answer this question to help me uh, convey the message to my students. You know, I teach criminal procedure uh, at Howard uh, Law School, and uh, I try to tell the students the advantages of being a prosecutor. And most of them uh, tell me, I, I don't want to be a prosecutor. I don't want to put black people in prison and, and uh uh, somehow the community thinks that the prosecutor is the bad guy. Help me change that perception <laughs> to my students as well as uh, the citizens. I wish that I could. And, and let me, before I get to the, to the to my answer on that, that is really a, a, an issue right now, Judge. I mean, you know, I've been going through a hiring process here and, and identifying um, African-American or people of color in general who are coming through law school and wanting to get into um, the prosecution field, they are few and far between, uh, almost non-existent, quite frankly. And that's because, and what I say to a number of people that I try to get to think about becoming prosecutors who are young attorneys, they say, well, I don't want to do that because of all the perception that's going on out there with law enforcement overall. And I'm like, well, let me ask you a question. If you think these people aren't doing the job properly, would you do the job properly? You know, it always comes down to are you going to try to make change from outside the system or inside the system? We need both types of folks out there doing that. Um, you know, as a prosecutor, uh, if you're doing the job properly, um, it's a noble ethical profession and you're, com you're protecting your community. Because let me tell you something. You talk about I don't want to put black, black men in, in jail or, or black women in jail because that's so many of the people who are getting uh, charged. Well, the problem is Many, if not most, of the victims of those people who have committed crimes, assuming that they did commit the crime, happen to be people of color as well. So you're protecting your community more so than focusing on uh, the, the, the demographic of whatever um, defendant you happen to be in. Look, the criminal justice system is nothing more than a reflection of our society, right? I mean, there, there, there is, is, is racism. Uh, there is systemic racism, uh, individual racism in every single industry, whatever you want to call it, in our society. And we are never going to have the, the, the racial disparities totally fixed until we fix it everywhere in our community. Because as you were saying in your introduction, uh, Judge, and as Mr. Rapping was saying while, while, while he was talking, you know, this is ingrained in our heads. It's not just 400 years of, of, uh, of black inferiority, people think, and being pushed onto us. It's long before that. Sure, the United States did it better than anybody. The entire culture, um, uh, from, from po political, to judicial, religious, every part of our culture, um, preached that and put it into people's heads. That's what we have to fix Along with our criminal justice system, yeah, we got to fix that too. But we can't fix anything without fixing the overall cultural problem. So if you want to help out, you don't want to put black people in jail. Well, okay, yeah, do the things that we can prevent people from committing crimes in the first place. And then two, 
come on in, help out as a prosecutor, and do the right thing, like the vast majority do, um, but do the right thing and help out from within the system. That's how I kind of look at it. We're talking to Tony Covington, the elected state's attorney, the prosecutor for Charles County, Maryland. Now, uh, uh, Tony, um, it's pretty uh, well known that prosecutors have awesome power and uh, great discretion to make decisions. And I guess uh, the question that I would ask you is, how can you utilize your discretion and um, um, awesome power as a prosecutor to help, as you said, fix the system? Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, you talked about, not unfortunately, you talked about, Mr. Rapping talked about it, you talked about discretion. Um, I think that's uh, that's important. But, you know, there are difficulties in, tr- one, um, identifying um, the decision makers, one, who aren't making the decisions correctly, okay, right? You know, a police officer, you know, you got to remember, a prosecutor, as well as, you know, what you did for 20 years, judge, as a judge, we are derivative users, right? We're downstream from the beginning of the process. We are not the beginning of the process. Uh, The prosecutors have a decision to be made, but some decisions have already been made for you. The police, you know, they got two types of decision-making they can do out there. One is I call totally discretionary. And that's the cop sitting out there in his patrol car, sees 100 uh, traffic violations go by, and on the 101st, he decides to stop somebody. That's totally his discretion. Then you have the other, the other type of crime where somebody committed the crime, and whoever committed that crime, the description is going to be what it's going to be. It's going to be a white person, black person, Asian, uh, Hispanic, whatever, um, and the police have to investigate uh for that person. So there's not a whole lot of discretion in, in the, in the crime where somebody just committed it and you go out and try to find the guy. There's a heck of a lot more on the other side. And those are the ones that you have to really take a look at because those numbers add up real quickly. And some of these quote unquote minor misdemeanor cases, they have enormous impact on defendants. Um, whether, you know, you lose your license, things like that, you get into a cycle where you get pulled over because you got to drive to get to work and on and on and on. And next thing you know, you're going to jail all because of some ridiculous um, traffic violations, right? Um, the other side, uh, the more important things, well, they come forward and then the prosecutor gets involved in it and has to use his discretion. But I can tell you this, and this is this is the problem, okay? Because um, I still review... Um, even though I've been doing this for quite a while, I review every case before it's indicted here in Charles County. Indictments in Maryland are all felony cases. They're all serious stuff. I believe I owe it to the citizens that put me in office to to make sure I'm looking at all of them, right? But I'm not looking at somebody's race. Whoever got charged got charged based on the investigation. So it's just not that easy. Okay, well, we got to look at here. And what am I going to do? All of a sudden, I'm going to tell my my attorneys, okay, well, let's not not prosecute... um, this person because he is white or this person because he is black or whatever. That obviously can't be the way to deal with these things. So it's very difficult. You got to deal with the implicit bias. You've really got to look at all of these things and figure it out. And then judges have the same uh, problems too. Once they get a case, they see a defendant in front of them. They didn't bring them there, but they, it's their obligation to impose some type of a sentence. Um, so it's very difficult to one, identify the, 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 those folks who have a problem, not saying it's conscious, but some of them may, may be, to identify those, and then what do you do about it? 
again, that goes back to what both of you said earlier, and I've already said once, is that's a whole cultural societal thing that has to be dealt with. Um, right now, we are in my office, we're looking to, to, to have somebody um, uh, uh, research uh, academic organization, hopefully come in and, you know, take a look at the prosecutor's office and the decision making what's coming from the police, what's getting to the judges, all that stuff, and try to identify things. And of course, again, you try to train people ahead of time right now um, so that they are sensitive to the issues um, and you go forward from there. So it's a very tough nut to crack um, in my view, but, you know, we're working at it. Uh, tell my listeners, uh, we're talking to Tony Covington, the elected state's attorney for Charles County, Maryland. Uh uh, Tony, uh, you, you've mentioned the uh, the difficulty of trying to balance all these considerations, and I'd ask uh, this question uh, with this uh, preface that uh, as an elected prosecutor, you represent the community, you obviously represent victims, your key witnesses are law enforcement officers, and of course you've got to assure that the accused has a, a fair uh, trial. Uh, is it difficult balancing all of those considerations as a prosecutor? Well, for, for me, no. Um, and I, I don't think I'm any, anybody special, but, you know, my job is very clear to me and I make it very clear to my attorneys. All right. Justice. OK, we're always looking for justice. Justice means this one. We believe um, that the person committed a committed a particular act or crime. Right. And we believe that we have the evidence that if looked at fairly will result in a conviction by by a jury. OK, that's that. That's number one. And justice is very simple. It's a very simple formula. A person should be held accountable. OK, for the crime they committed. Nothing more and nothing less. That is our job. It's either the person pleads to that crime that they committed, nothing more, nothing less. Or if they're not willing to do that, then we have a trial and a jury or a judge finds them guilty then we believe that justice is done in that particular case. As far as the sentencing is concerned, that is 98% up to the judge. Um, we're obviously going to have a recommendation to make, um, but Maryland, believe it or not, and Judge, you can uh, weigh in on this as well, but uh, Maryland was not beset with all the draconian um, uh, mandatory minimums like the federal system was. We had a, We had a few, but not that many, and it was still discretionary, or is still discretionary with the judge. Um, in federal court, a lot of times the judges had no had no say in it. Their hands were tied. And just for the record, I don't believe that judges should ever have their hands tied when it comes to sentencing. Um, you know, that's what that's why judges are put on the bench. <laughs> They're there to make the decision, and it shouldn't be up to a prosecutor to decide ultimately that hey, judge, I want this to happen, and it's got to happen. So um, that's just an aside there. But I certainly agree with that yeah. <laughs> as a, a former uh, judge. A uh, couple more questions, uh, Tony. Uh, the, the, the reality of life in the criminal justice system is that uh, black and brown communities are disproportionately affected in terms of uh, uh, arrests, uh, uh, prosecution, as well as uh, incarceration. Now, what are your thoughts with reference to the effect the uh, disproportionate effect on uh, black and brown communities? Well, it happens, and it's destroying communities. Um, I remember when, and Judge, I know you remember this, when, you know, the new Jack City phase, if you will, back when crack came out and when they decided to come up with the, the, the more serious um, uh, crime, uh, excuse me, penalties for crack over powder cocaine. And if you recall, 
many of many folks in the neighborhoods were calling for that because they didn't see the unintended uh, consequence uh, c- coming from that. Um, but how can I how can I say this? Um, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not sure how I want to say that, so I just won't go there. Um, but um, you know, all these things, uh, as far as disparity is, is concerned. To me, much of it starts with, again, we go back to culture, but within the system itself, it comes back to a lot of policing decisions. You know, it's very simple um, if here in Charles County, um, you know, the vast majority of the population lives in Waldorf, that's the main um, population center, and much of that population, the majority of it is black. Um, Then you have some of the outskirts where you have white communities. Uh, Well, the police aren't policing patrolling those other more affluent white communities. They only have to be affluent, just not patrolling them at all, whereas they are in Waldorf. Well, are we surprised that if your police are all in a black or brown community, that's where your arrests are going to come from? And see here, this is the problem, and this is the problem. The arrest can be legitimate, right? Perfectly legitimate arrest. So as a prosecutor, what am I supposed to do at that point? Say, well, because the the police chief or the sheriff is patrolling this particular area more so than the other. I'm not going to prosecute that case when the crime was committed and the the everything was perfectly constitutional, done by the book. Hard to say, no, I'm not going to prosecute that case. So part of the problem, and I think a huge part of the problem, is the policing tactics that go on. Where am I putting my resources as the police chief or the sheriff? Because I'm, I can tell you, we all know, all of us know that, let's talk about drugs, that each demographic in our community uses or abuses drugs at about the same rate. But the arrest rates for black and brown people is sky high compared to white people. That obviously is clearly about policing, right? Who are you targeting? Or who are you around that you're going to come across them, right, um, in your policing duties when you're on the beat or whatever it is, driving around, you come, come, in, come in contact with those folks more often than the others. And so that's how we get those numbers up there. It is something that has to be addressed. Um, and I think some folks are trying to right now. But I think I heard Mr. Rapping say, some prosecutors are saying, hey, I'm not going to prosecute this entire category of cases. That's very difficult to do. I am very much, they, they call me case-by-case case Covington. Everything in the criminal law is, is individual, you know? And, and uh, I can say real quickly, Judge, you know, I know we had this one judge one time, or I dealt with this one judge one time, who he did the exact same thing no matter what. Well, that's not being tough. That's not being anything. That's, quite frankly, it's being intellectually lazy to me that I'm not willing, as, as the judge, to take a look at each individual case and each individual defendant and see what his or her circumstance is. So um, everything needs to be on a case-by-case. I think a lot of the disparity begins with the policing. But don't, don't let me don't, – don't try to say that I'm trying to get the, the prosecutor or the judges off the hook. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we are derivative users, and when the police are giving us this all the time, um, it's very difficult to, to, to deal with it. We'll uh, certainly have another episode later when we'll bring you back to uh, talk about uh, the notion of selective uh, enforcement. But uh, 
uh, we, our time has uh, come. Uh, I have about 30 seconds left, uh, so I'll just ask you to quickly comment on what Mr. Rappin uh, indicated. He said he's not a fan of the term progressive prosecutor, uh, but uh, he's happy that uh, prosecutors are being uh, appointed and elected these days who are less uh, punitive in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, let me say this, and you will know this, Judge Williams. When I started in 1991 in your office, people who were had possession charges and things like that, they weren't really going to jail, and they shouldn't have been. You know, prosecutors, and this is what is really hilarious to me about the criminal justice reform outcry. Prosecutors, police, public defenders, defense attorneys, judges, all of those groups have been crying out for more resources so we don't have to put people in jail. People say, hey, this guy needs to go to treatment. Fine. Show me a bed. Where are the beds? Where are the programs? Right? The resources needed for all the alternative things that people are crying for now or crying out for now, police and judges and, and, and attorneys have been crying out for that for decades, as long as I've been doing it. So I'm glad that we are finally at a point where there seems to be the political will to provide the resources for these things. Because let me tell you something. you got public defenders who are overworked. you got prosecutors who are very much overworked, who have ridiculous caseloads, right? I don't know which is worse. <laughs> okay, I don't know which one harms the system more, quite frankly. Both of them do. But we don't have enough courts. We don't have enough judges. We need more money more money in the criminal justice system. And it doesn't have to be in the courtrooms or, or putting people in jail. It can be the programs, the diversion programs that we want to do, the early education and preventive uh, 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 folks getting into the system when kids are teenagers, the, the returning home folks, they need resources too. Where are the resources? That's what this thing really needs to be about. Sure, it has to be about how things are operating within, but if we really want to fix it, we have to look at before crime is committed and after guys have served their time or, or whatever they've, they've done uh, in, um, to answer for, their, for the crime they committed. Those two ends of it, woefully funded. Putting people in jail, we're the best at it in the world, right? Got more people locked up than anybody else. Let's work on the front end and the back end to reduce crime that way. This is... Uh perspective on justice. This was Tony Covington, the elected prosecutor for Charles County. And Tony, I want to say that I'm so proud of all that you have accomplished and uh, we'll certainly get you back. But thank you for being our guest today on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you, Judge. Thank you for having me. And so we have it. Let me conclude by saying we've looked at the role of public defenders and the training that's necessary to make sure that the public defenders adequately represent individuals. We've also looked at the role of the elected prosecutor who has wide discretion. We've taken a look uh, through the discussions by our guests as to the criminal justice reform and the call all over America for basic criminal justice reform. But fortunately, as pointed out by our speakers, uh, we know that there's a, a trend right now for a focus on fixing what is broken. I want to thank my guests. First of all, Mr. Jonathan Rapping, the defense attorney and professor of law, and also the founder of Gideon's Promise. And secondly, I want to thank uh, Mr. Tony Covington, the elected state's attorney for Charles County, Maryland. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. 
If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.